What a reminder of our great God and all that he has done for us. Taking these broken people and making us children of God. This morning, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to the text that uh, Caleb read just a few moments ago in Luke chapter 18. Uh, We will be there in just a moment. Of course, many of you know that we have been making our way over the last number of months through the greatest stories ever told, a, a series on many of the greatest stories that Jesus told during his earthly ministry. Of course, all these stories point us back to the great story, and that's the story that we have sung about ever since the beginning of our service, and that's the story of redemption, how God reached down and saved wretches like you and me. And today, we will continue that series. Lord willing, next Sunday will be our conclusion to that series, and I'll be telling you next Sunday what we're planning to do uh, after that. But uh, today, we will look at another one of the the greatest stories that have been told. No doubt numbers of you have, in your lifetime, seen terrifying scenes. No doubt some of you have uh, fought in war. And some of the scenes that you remembered seeing in war were ones that you wish you could forget. Some of you have witnessed accidents terrifying scenes on the highway, or maybe some other tragic event. Those of us who have been around for a little bit will not forget what we saw on September 11th. Some of the scenes that were played out before us on that particular day will be ones that we will not forget. Some of you who may be a little bit younger, you may not have seen any great terrifying or tragic events, but maybe you've read them. As you have read history, you've read about incredibly devastating times. I know for me, one of the most terrifying scenes for me in all of my Bible is not a past event, but it is in fact a future event. And it's a terrifying one. It's one, in fact, that Jesus, during his, one of his greatest sermons ever preached, told about that I believe would terrify any of us. It's in Matthew chapter 7. It says this. Jesus says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven... He says, on that day, which is a future day, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Here, religious people stand before Jesus at the final judgment, and what happens? They are sent out of his presence into hell for all eternity. I mean, imagine that for a moment. Imagine witnessing a parent of yours ushered before God And hearing him pronounce that statement, I never knew you, depart from me. 
What about one of your children? You hear God pronounce that to them. Or maybe a dear friend. Or maybe even one of your pastors at church here. Or a man who served as a deacon. What about your spouse? Imagine if this was yourself. You hearing those state, those words right to your heart. How does this happen? How can a person be deceived in this particular way? Let me tell you, it will happen. Because Jesus says, many people will do this. Today, I'm speaking to a religious crowd who many of you could pronounce some of these lines. Yeah, you may not have cast out a demon, but you could say, I've done many good works in Jesus' name. Did you know that one of the most frequented doors to hell is through the doors of a church and through the doors of a religious life? And so you and I need to beware. Today, our parable gives one of the ways that this can happen. But thankfully and fortunately, it also gives us the remedy on how we can avoid allowing it to happen in our life. Today, we are going to look at a parable entitled the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. Also, if you don't know what a publican is, this was a tax collector. It's also been called the parable of the two prayers. This is a parable that is found exclusively within the gospel of Luke, and it is incredibly organized in its setup. In fact, if you were to just uh, allow it to just fall apart in front of you, verse 9, of course, is kind of the introduction to the parable. Verses 10, 11, 12, and 13, those four middle verses are the parable itself. And then you have a conclusion in verse 14. You say, Pastor Brian, what's the theme? What is Jesus trying to get across in this parable? Well, you can find the secret to it in the intro and then the conclusion. You have two words that kind of are your uh, alert. Maybe it's like an alarm going off saying, this is what we're talking about here. The first is in verse 9, and it's the word righteous. In fact, it says this in verse 9, it says, and he told a parable to some of them who trusted that they were what? Righteous. And then go to the final verse of our parable, verse 14, you see another word that shouts to us the theme, and it's the word justified. In fact, what does justified mean? It means this, to be declared righteous. So in this, we see that the theme of this whole thing is about righteousness. How does a person become righteous? Because a guy at the end of this story is declared righteous. One thinks he's righteous. One is in actuality righteous. But for us, when you read the parable, it seems reversed. Today, we're going to learn a very simple truth, and it's this. 
True righteousness is not man-made, but God-given to the humble. Let me say that again. True righteousness. In fact, the righteousness that you're going to need when you stand before God, if you are going to have entrance into eternity with God in heaven, you need to have true righteousness. But let me tell you, it is not man-made. You cannot produce it yourself. True righteousness is not man-made. It is God-given. It's a gift. And God only gives it to the humble. So when it comes to entering heaven, you must be given righteousness by God as a gift. It's not a do-it-yourself project, your salvation. Justification, being declared righteous, is by faith and faith alone. How will we see this? Well, let's follow the story here, okay? Because Jesus gives it, sets it up to us really in, in a beautiful picture. And the first thing we're going to see today is this, man-made righteousness. You know what? Man likes to try to make their own righteousness, and it's illustrated by this Pharisee in the parable. Our text opens with an intro to who Jesus is talking to. He tells us exactly the people who he's addressing this parable to. And this time, it's not his disciples. It's not necessarily to the crowds. It's to a particular group of people. So this is a strategically designed missile at some people. Who were they? They were the self-righteous. They thought they could come with their own righteousness. And look what it says in verse 9. It says this. He also told a parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and they treated others with contempt. So he starts talking to this group and uh, sometimes people think, hey, maybe he's just talking to the Pharisees, but it doesn't say that. The Pharisees no doubt were included, but he's talking to a group of people and they have two characteristics about them. It says, number one, they trusted themselves that they were righteous. That what they had in and among themselves was what was needed to present to God as their righteousness. But then they also had a second characteristic, and it was this. They treated others with contempt. Let's talk about the first one for a second. First, they trusted in their own performance to be their righteousness. It's at that point that Jesus gives a parable to illustrate how precarious that position is. Look what it says in verse 10. He says this, two men went up into a temple to pray, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So two guys, they couldn't have been more different. One was a Pharisee, one was a tax collector. One was a man of religion, one was a man of the world. Of course, those of you who have grown up in church and you have learned about these Pharisees, the Pharisees were the religious elite of that day. They strived to keep the law of Moses that God had given in the Old Testament to the nth degree. In fact, they not only tried to keep the law, they added their own interpretations of the law and their own traditions that they believed they needed to do as well. We who are readers of the New Testament are first introduced to them in the ministry of John the Baptist, who John the Baptist, when he's preaching the the gospel of repentance and faith toward the one who was coming, he exposed their own hypocrisy. 
He says, yeah, everything's nice on the outside, but inside you're filled with filth. In fact, the Bible tells us this about every human being. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Pharisees were lost and broken. They may have tried to fix up and clean up the outside. But they were messed up on the inside. They were sinners. Notice that both of these men went up to the temple to pray. I've told you that the temple in Israel, in Jerusalem, was on the the upper hill. And so whenever you went to the temple, you went up to the temple. So they went up. At the end of the story, what you're going to find is they go down. And they go to their house. The Pharisee begins to pray. And what his prayer reveals is his own self-righteous position. You often can tell a person by the way they pray. And this Pharisee prays and he shows that his reliance is on himself and what he's performed and what he's done. In fact, he refers to himself five times in his prayer. I, 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 I. How often do you refer to I in your prayers? You should when you confess. But here was a man, everything, I. In fact, it says in verse 11, It says, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give tithes of all that I get. So what does he do? He stands, which was the normal way of praying at that particular time. But he stands what? By himself. You say, why was he doing that? Well, he was trying to keep himself ceremonially clean from the tax collector who was in the temple vicinity. He says, I got to keep away from him if in some way he touches me. And at that point, many of their interpretations was, I will be unclean. I can't do that. So he stood afar off from him by himself. Although it says he prayed... Not in reality. Yes, it's interesting. His prayer does reflect the beginning of Psalm 27, where the psalmist talks about how he had kept himself from the evil and from the wicked. However, it in no way reflects his dependence on God. He thanks God that he's not like others whose sin is so apparent. He then, what he does is he begins to pronounce his own righteousness, his own works. He says in verse 12, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. In fact, did you know the Jewish nation in the Old Testament, under the the law of Moses, they were required at least once a year to be a part of a mandatory fast. And that was on the Day of Atonement. Pharisees, however, and evidently this guy who Jesus is painting a picture of, He did much more. In fact, in their traditions of that day, it was probably on Mondays and Thursdays that he withheld from eating from certain meals in order to show his piety. In reference to his tithing, he says, I tithe of all that I get. In fact, Jesus at one point during his earthly ministry 
told how some Pharisees gave even a tithe of their seeds and spices to show their righteousness. It's almost like this. You have a little mint plant on your back porch and whatever it grows, oh, I've got to give a tenth of my mint. This little herb, I've got to give it to God. And so I'm going to tithe of everything I have. They took it to the nth degree. And they were trusting in their own righteousness. In fact, in essence, this man was celebrating his own righteousness. And I'll tell you this, there are numbers of religious people in our day, even in this church, who think that they have a right standing before God because they trust in their own good works, their own righteousness. I've done pretty good. However, as we read at the beginning of our message, one day they'll be surprised to learn their denied entrance into heaven due to their reliance on their own righteousness. They trusted in their own performance. And I'll tell you, so much of the world's religion is centered and built on this particular concept. In fact, it's the heavenly scale. They think of, okay... Uh, I've done a lot of bad things. However, I'll do a bunch of good things, and hopefully my good things are going to outweigh my bad things. And so God, look what I got. I'm doing a lot of righteous things. I, I've been baptized. I go to church. I give. I'm kind to people. Let me tell you, that is one of the greatest lies of Satan. Because people can think that they can produce their own righteousness when the Bible is very clear about your righteousness. In fact, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, it says this, we have all become like one who is unclean, all of us. And all of our righteous deeds, catch that? All of your righteous deeds, everything you do, all of them are like a what? A polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf and our iniquities like the wind take us away. Are you relying on your own righteousness for that day when you stand before God? You know, one way to find out if a person is trusting in their own righteousness is simply to ask this question. What must you do to go to heaven? Or what are you depending on to get yourself to heaven? And what you do is you listen to them. So imagine this, you ask somebody, what are you depending on to get yourself to heaven? What are you trusting in? And oftentimes they'll begin with this. Oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. Good. Stop, stop, stop there. But then if you say this, anything else? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I've been baptized. I, I'm, I'm really faithful I go, to, uh, I go to church, I'm, I'm kind to people. And what begins to happen is you begin to realize that yeah, yeah, Jesus is good, but you know what? I have my righteousness that I'm bringing to the table that I'm gonna present. I, I've got some things. So if, if Jesus isn't enough, I got my own works. I got my own righteousness. They start to talk about their own performance. And what it reveals is this. They are do-it-yourselfers. And what's the end of that work? You know what this Pharisee, he was a do-it-yourselfer. He thanked God 
But you know what? He brought his own righteousness to the table. And you know what you're going to find at the end of our text? This man is not justified. He is not declared righteous. Later in the text, the Bible says that those who exalt themselves, they will be the ones humbled. Look what it says at the end of verse 12. It says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. You say, Pastor Brian, what does that mean that he will be humbled? The implied end is this, separation from God in hell. If you exalt yourself and push yourself forward, you will face the punishment. Ironically, this man's unrighteousness was seen in his own behavior. Did you catch that? He trusted in his own self that he was righteous, but what was his behavior? He treated others with contempt. Did you know that those who have truly experienced salvation, if you really have experienced the righteousness of God given to you by faith, those of you who understand that know that your job now from that point on is to give grace to others. In fact, I often say this, grace receivers become grace dispensers. If you receive the overwhelming, unmerited favor of God, you know what you do to other people? You become a channel of that grace to other people. And I'll tell you this, if you treat others with contempt, the question I have to ask you is this, have you truly been a recipient of the grace of God? Now, can believers stumble in this? Yes, we can stumble We can revert back to some of our old lifestyle, but it will not be a pillar of our life anymore. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things are past. All things have become new. In fact, when the apostle John talks about the marks of someone who's a believer, he says in 1 John 3, he says this, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. Then he says this, nor is the one who does not love his brother. And when it says brother, he's not just talking about your naturally born brother. It includes him, those of you who have brothers, but includes those who you live life with. And if you have contempt, do you have contempt with your parents, your spouse, your fellow believers, or any others? Is this an evidence of your own spiritual condition? Your own building of your own righteousness? My question to you this morning is this. What do you look upon as your trust to get yourself to heaven? What if I was to ask you the question this morning? Hey, what are you depending on to get yourself to heaven? And you said, oh, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe he was a person. He lived a life. I, I, I believe he rose from the dead. But is there anything else you're trusting in? Oh, yeah, 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 I got to do this. I got to do this and got to do this. What are you trusting in? Are you going to be the one who stands there and says, haven't I done many good works in your name, God? Are you deceived this morning? If you are seeking in any way to bring your own righteousness before God, And say, hey, here's what I got. Let me tell you, you will fail every time. 
There is a man-made righteousness, and I'll tell you this, because of the fall, you and I love it. That's who we are. We like to be our own gods. We like to be our own saviors. And I'll tell you this, you're going to have to turn your back on you being your own savior. The great thing is that God provided a righteousness that has nothing to do with you. In fact, now I'm going to talk to you about God-given righteousness. You say, tell me about this God-given righteousness. It's illustrated by the tax collector. Okay? And so Jesus now presents a second person in the parable. This tax collector. Who was this guy? What was he like? Now, nowadays, you and I, we don't necessarily see our tax collector. We, we may send them letters and we may interact with them. But at that point, if you were the tax collector, you were looked down upon by everyone in the community as a great sinner. Because oftentimes they were swindlers as well. They were sellouts to Rome. They abandoned their own people. And they were often put into the category of the harlots and the adulterers and the thieves. These were the worst type of sinners. And it's interesting, this man agreed with it. Notice he goes up to the temple to pray as well. Look what it says in verse 13. It says, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So what does he do? First thing, he stands afar off. He can't get close. I don't even want to get close. I'm so bad. His guilt's so great. God, I'm not worthy. Let me say that there may be some of you here today and you feel that way. You've come from a world of sin. You've come from a weekend of sin. Like, I, I can't sit up front. Just get me a, if you can find me a cave in church, I'll go there. Some of you online, it's like, I don't even want to go to church right now. I just feel so guilty. When he prays, he can't even lift his eyes to heaven. His own sin is real. And I'll tell you this, some of you know this all too well. I know this. Our sin is great. Thankfully, God is in the business to help those types of sinners. And if you're here today and you feel the weight of your own sin, let me tell you, you came to the right spot because we have a great God. What does this man do? He beats his breast. This was a sign of deep contrition. I mean, we often think of our heart as being the center of our emotions. And here he's beating his heart knowing that his insight is just defiled. The heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And he knew it. Notice his prayer is profoundly simple. You know what so often many people I talk to, when I talk to them about, about their salvation and whether they truly came to Christ, they're like, I don't know if I prayed the right thing. Did I say all the right words? You know, let me tell you, God knows your heart. And in this text, you have the most simple prayer imaginable. In fact, this is Jesus' sinner's prayer. Okay? 
The tax collector, what does he do? He goes to God. He says, God. And then all he simply does is this. He calls to him for mercy. I want you to notice this. Did you notice that he says, be merciful to me, a what? A sinner. But it's interesting. You don't pick this up. Sometimes there is some advantages to be able to read in the original Greek. And in the Greek, there's a definite article on, on sinner, which means this, have mercy, be, have mercy on me, the sinner. I'm the one. I've done it. I am the sinner. I know I've messed up. In fact, his prayer kind of echoes the prayer of David in Psalm 51, where he, he says, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done this great wickedness in your sight. What you can see even in his simple words here is this. There is repentance. He doesn't want his sin anymore. Notice as well that he doesn't appeal to his own work. He doesn't bring any righteousness. He doesn't say, I've done this, God. I've done this. But he solely relies on the grace and mercy of God. He totally depends. God, you're the one. Notice that he calls on God to simply do this. Be merciful. Now here is something else that I'm telling you just fascinated me as I studied this. That little verb, be merciful. It was an imperative. God, I want you to be merciful to me. He's crying out to God to do this. This was not the customary term for mercy in your Bibles. You see the word mercy oftentimes in the New Testament. But this particular word, be merciful, was a highly specialized word. In fact, it is used only one other time in your New Testament. It was a term reserved for one of the most sacred events in national Israel, and that was this, the Day of Atonement. You say, what happened on the Day of Atonement? It was the one day a year where the high priest who had been set aside by the nation, they would slaughter an animal. In many ways, is a picture of what the Messiah or the, the, the Christ would one day do. They slaughtered the animal, got the blood, and they were to walk into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, and they were to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was to provide a covering for the sins of those people. Once a year, they were to do that. And that particular event was a process of making propitiation, appeasing the wrath of God in a covering. And that blood was there ultimately in the Old Testament to picture the sacrifice that would one day happen on the cross. And it's interesting, the only other place this term is used in your New Testament is where it is used in reference to Jesus fulfilling that role as our high priest. In fact, it is in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. In fact, look at this text for me with me. Talking about Jesus. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers. This is talking about Jesus in every respect. Jesus took on humanity. So that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. Now, some of you would say, hey, there's the word merciful. That's not the one. It's coming. 
that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the servants of God, and here it is, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That word make propitiation is this, provide a covering and restore this relationship. Please. What's happening in this parable is this, Jesus puts that term in the mouth of the publican. You know what that would have been? That would have been like a scandalous. And Jesus said, this publican said, God, make a covering for me. Appease the wrath. Make reconciliation for me, a sinner. And what Jesus does here is he shows really what salvation is. It's where we come to God and realize I can't do nothing. God, be my covering. Be my righteousness. Restore this relationship. Here is a man who all he can do is he's calling on God for deliverance. God, forgive me of my sin. Here was a man who realized that he had nothing to offer. And all of you in this room, you have nothing to offer God for eternity. When it comes to, there's nothing you can provide to have your own sins forgiven. There's no righteousness. But what this man does is this. He wholly relies on the goodness of his God and the covering of another. He places his faith in God. And all of that was going to happen in the work of Jesus Christ. He was the one who shed his blood. This is how justification occurs. How do you and I become righteous and are able to stand at that final judgment? And he says, welcomes you into heaven. Let me tell you, we cannot bring anything to the table. But in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, it says something absolutely beautiful. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. You placed your faith in him. And this is not your own doing. It is what? It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one will boast. There there won't be one of you be able to say, hey, I did a lot of good things for you at Lebanon Baptist Church. I went on this mission trip, this one, this one. I got baptized, 1985. Book of Titus says this, says it beautifully. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own what? His own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being, here it is, justified by his grace. You don't deserve it. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what Jesus does now is as he's telling this parable, he tightens the vice on these self-righteous. And in his final words, he says in verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, he went down to his house, what? Declared righteous. In fact, Jesus uses the word, I tell you. In the book of Luke, you could underline every time it says, I tell you, he does it 28 times. And it's basically to show Jesus' authority. He says, I tell you, this man, he went home righteous rather than the Pharisee. And he sums it all up with that final axiom. 
He says, for whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If you try to bring and exalt yourself and bring your own works to the table and say, I've done all this, God, you will be humbled. And that humbling will begin at that great judgment seat. You can either work your way to heaven or you can make, or you can either work your way there and never make it, or you can place your faith in God and accept his free gift. You can either do it as a wage. Hey God, I'll I'll pay you by doing a lot of good things, or you can receive it as a gift. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And I'll tell you this, if you want to work your way to heaven, let me tell you, you're responsible to do it all, every bit of it. You've got to obey all the law. You've got to do it all. And there's only one person who obeyed it all in every point, yet without sin. And he was the only one who could provide the covering for you. And you have to be credited with his righteousness. It is here we learn that it wasn't Paul who introduced the concept of justification by faith, okay? Jesus taught it right here many years before. In fact, Paul elaborated on it. You want to know how this is the truth from the very beginning, even in the Old Testament? Listen to what Paul says to the Romans in Romans chapter 4. He says, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? What he's saying, he's going all the way back to the Old Testament. He said, how did Abraham, who lived in 2000 BC, how did he get righteousness? Did he do anything according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by his works, he has something to boast about. If he did his good things and got circumcised and did some of those rules, if it was by that, then when he got to heaven, he would be able to say, hey God, I got circumcised, I've done a lot of good things. Then he could boast about it. But then it says this, but not before God. He says, but what does the scriptures teach? It says this, for what does the scripture say? How did Abraham get righteousness? Abraham believed God. He placed his faith in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. He was credited with righteousness, not because of what he did. He placed his faith in his God and what the future work would be in Christ. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift but as his due. If you want to work for it, let me tell you, you're due it, and you better get it all. And I'll tell you, you'll never get it. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. You know what? This was the great truth heralded from the Old Testament and on. It was celebrated during the Reformation, sole fide. Faith alone. So today, what did we learn? We learned this simple truth. True righteousness is not man-made, but God-given to the humble. That's who righteousness is given to. It comes only through faith, and it's only Jesus' work that is sufficient. It is only his work. You can rely on your work, or you can place your dependence on him alone and for what he did on the cross. And I'll tell you this, offering any of your work for salvation is offensive to him. Okay, imagine this. Imagine that I 
Okay, I'm not going to do this, I'm telling you. But let's say I bought you a brand new Tesla. I purchased you a brand new Tesla, pulled it to you and said, hey, this is a gift from your pastor to you. Here it is. And I was just so thrilled to be able to do this. And you were like, no, 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 no. Let me pay you for it. I'm going to give you $5. There you go. There it is. Five bucks. I want to make sure you have that. You know what? If you did that, you know what that would be? That would absolutely be offensive to me. I just paid all of this. And you're seeking to just give your $5 to just make yourself look kind of good? Let's take it one step further. Let's imagine this. Imagine you were driving down my neighborhood and you struck one of my kids with your car and you killed them. I run out and I'm holding that child. And you get out, oh man, I shouldn't have done that. I was going too fast. And you get up to me and then you say, you pull out your checkbook. Say, hey, what can I write you for this? I mean, I know this is bad. I just want to, let me pay you back for this. What would I do? Let me remind you, God gave his only what? Son for you. And for you to try to trample on his work and what he's done by providing your meager work, all he said is this, for by grace are you saved through faith. Just ask him for the gift. Don't try to earn it. Don't try to make it a wage. You need to accept it by faith or you can try to live it out in your own pride. I can't help but think of a man by the name of Simon Peter. Many of you know Simon Peter. It was at one point he ran into another Simon in the book of Acts chapter 8. And in Acts chapter 8, another Simon who was a sorcerer says this. He wants to buy the gift of God, which was one of the evidences of the gift of God was the Holy Spirit that came to begin to control and help God's people. He wanted to buy the gift of God with money. And so how does Paul respond? How does Peter respond to him? He basically, in essence, tells Simon the sorcerer, he says this, to hell with you and your money because you have sought to buy the gift of God with your own money. Listen to what it says in Acts chapter 8. I'll I'll give it to you clearly. But Peter said to him, may your silver, your money, perish. That's talking about hell. May it perish with you. Because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with what? With your own works. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Lebanon Baptist Church, justification is by grace through faith. True righteousness is not man-made, but God-given. Let me tell you, I wasn't planning to end this way. In fact, I didn't have permission to do this. It all just came about in between the two services. And this 
individual said, Brian, I'd love for you to share this. It's two weeks ago. One of the things we do in our membership process is I ask people about their salvation. And I ask many of those same questions. I ask, hey, what are you depending on to get yourself to heaven? And this particular individual, as they said, I I depend on Jesus. Anything else? Yeah, I have to be faithful. I have to do this. And they begin to add. And I said, let's stop right there. We got to keep talking. What's your trust in? And of course, she had grown up in church and trusted in a lot of what she had done. And as she began to express it, she could see that. So I said, we need to continue this conversation. So the following Wednesday, we got together in my office and I presented her the truth of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And right there in my office, she cried out to God to be her savior. And she placed her faith in Jesus Christ and him alone. And this morning we met again between the two services. And she said, Pastor Brian, my life has been totally different the last week and a half. I have finally seen that it's not my performance, it's God. It's him and him alone. And we had to think through, and I remember that first meeting, I said, I'd rather be uncomfortable here right now in this membership meeting than for you to get to that day and stand before the judgment seat and it not be comfortable. And you know what she can say now? Who are you depending on to get yourself to heaven? Jesus and him alone. He's the only one who has the righteousness. And so she's going to, Lord willing, join the church today. You know what? And she wanted me to share that with you. I said, do you want me to share that? She says, yes, I want all. Because you know what? I don't want any of you to be trusted in your own righteousness. I want you to trust in Christ and him alone. Because you know what? We're all tax collectors. Let me tell you. And we all need the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of this text of scripture. We thank you for what you have done in and through your Jesus, in our lives. With your heads bowed and eyes closed, there may be some of you here today and you are still relying on your own righteousness, just like I did for a while, just like this individual I talked about did for a while. You know what? And you need to turn to Jesus Christ today. You know what? You say, Pastor Brian, what do I do? What do I say? You know what you really all need to say? It's this, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Become my savior. I turn my back on all of my righteousness and I place my faith in you and you alone. You do that right now in the quietness of this moment. And you know what? You will go down to your house justified with all of your sins forgiven. You do that right now. Father, We thank you for the grace of God that is greater than all of our sin. We thank you that all of us who identify as tax collectors have one thing to thank you for, and that's your son who made all the difference in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.